Welcome to the Emergent Ecosystem, a Zimbabwean podcast about ecosystems, how they support our livelihoods, and how we can steer them to create a better future. I'm your host, Scott Richardson. The Emergent Ecosystem now has a mailing list if you'd like to be notified about each new episode. You can join that mailing list by emailing theemergentecosystem at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can subscribe for free on most podcast apps, including Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, and the Podbean app. Now, firewood makes up a large proportion of the energy needs in Zimbabwe, and much of this is used for cooking food. So my guest this week, Robin Poles, discusses the design of wood stoves for a healthier kitchen and ecosystem. Robin Poles studied engineering and biotechnology at Cambridge, and also has a master's in education. He now works as a science teacher and an independent researcher. With nothing further ado, Robin Poles, welcome to the Emergent Ecosystem. Thank you. This is the Scotty show, is it? <laughs> it is indeed. Yeah. Well. Thanks, Robin. I got you on the show because you are looking into ways of making fires more efficient. But before we get into that, how did you actually start? Certainly. Well, it's a long-term interest. I've been always interested in energy use and how, even from a young teenager growing up here in Zimbabwean farm and observing different ways of curing tobacco, drying maize, handling paprika. We tried a variety of different things on my parents' farm. So you grew up on a farm then? Yes. Yes, a tobacco farm in, up in Mvurui. All right. From the farm, what did you do next? I went to spend about 10 to 15 years in universities and working in Europe and other places, Australia and America, before I decided to return to this country in 96. Yeah. Right, and what did you study? Chemical engineering, biotechnology. Okay, so you're pretty well qualified to test stoves as well. Okay? <laughs> yes, I know the, the, the theories, yes. I studied the technical side of things by delving into engineering and now trying to apply some of those tools and techniques to improve not just the stove but how it's used and I sure. think that's perhaps something that's even more important to to realize that this isn't simply a focus on trying to improve the thermal efficiency of a stove if we got really specific and technical yes we need to look a little bit broader and think more carefully about how do people actually use that stove especially in Zimbabwe where a lot of cooking is done on burnt wood or charcoal, it's more than just how efficient it is for the wood or the charcoal, but a lot more about, well, what environment is the cooking being done in? How much yes. smoke and fumes and other particularly unpleasant toxins is the cook being exposed to? So what work have you done on the stove so far? We've been doing a standardized test to compare the metal rocket stove with a clay rocket stove with a traditional three-stone fire, as it's called, well, traditional fire on the ground, to really look at the various advantages. So what we've been doing is the standardized test has been established by a UN partnership, which is called the Clean Cooking Initiative or the Clean Cooking Alliance. It's changed its name a few year, over a few years. And Zimbabwe is, in fact, a signatory to that uh, partnership. And what people around the world have been looking at and trying to do is to not just improve the 
fuel use of the stove, but also to improve how well it cooks, how easy it is to use, and in a very significant sense, how much pollution it produces, especially how much smoke and toxins it produces in the face of the cook. All right, so there's quite a few different criteria that you're looking at when you're thinking about a stove. It's not yes. just the thermal efficiency, it's about how it's used at the end of the day yeah. and also the emissions that it produces in the in that kitchen, kitchen or environment or for wherever it's being used. And those are significant uh, aspects that have weighed against some of the changes that you might do for thermal efficiency. A very simple example is a chimney. Chimney is great, but it sucks out a lot of hot air. It takes a sure. lot of the heat out up the chimney. So it reduces the thermal efficiency, but it dramatically improves the exposure of the cook to carbon monoxide, particulate emissions, things like those. So that's the thermal efficiency, but you're also speaking about how the stove is used. Yes. So how does that come into it? One of the problems with a lot of stove development has been that it's often been done by researchers and scientists working in their laboratories in isolation. And they're extremely proud of the performance statistics they produce from their lab situations. And quite a lot of studies begin to show that this hasn't worked in the field sense. When they go and deliver the stove to the users in the field, the users don't use it in the same way. They don't use it for the same things. So the performance is not what is read in the laboratory. Yes. And so a lot of the testing has now been shifted to saying, well, okay, I've now designed my brilliant new stove. How's it actually going to perform with people using it? And a really good example in the Zimbabwean context is, well, what are you using the stove for? Particularly the starch intake of Zimbabweans takes a lot of cooking. Beans take hours to cook, sure. stewing along steadily. Sudza takes a considerable time to cook well and in the traditional manner. It's going to take 20-30 minutes to, to cook well. These are not quick cooking and so you're going to think about the difference between, should we say, a Southeast Asian person whipping something together quickly in a wok that's been slightly diced, it's cooking for possibly maybe at the very most 10 minutes compared to a Zimbabwean preparing long starches that need to be cooked or want to be cooked for an extended period. And so you've got to think, well, okay, this stove might be great at cooking something quick and fast, firing up, easy to use, but that's not what an average Zimbabwean is going to be using it for. It might be what an average uh, Thai or Vietnamese is using it for, but it's not going to apply in this context. So you need to take it further and consider the, the context and how it's used. And the other bit is to think about stoves are not only used for cooking. Lots of families heat water for washing, for other things on the stove, and quite often heat the household, warm them, warm themselves. So stoves are there for a social function as well as just a cooking function. And sure. It, you need to be able to understand what context the stove is being used in to see how it's going to perform. Some stoves have been shown to be remarkably good at slow simmering cooking. Others are very good at 
quick flash frying, should we say. So you think about those aspects. Is the thermal efficiency then is how the stove is used and the kind of food that's being cooked, um, as well as other uses. Possibly a last area that we spent quite a bit of time thinking about is what sort of fuel is the stove using? Yes. Yeah. We talk and say generally wood, but we can break that down considerably and the stoves in particular I've been working with are using mostly pieces of wood no thicker than your finger or thumb. Sure. So what we would class as small sticks, not timber that's been grown for 15 or 20 years. Sure. This is generally stuff that you can find lying around in any loose woodlot or, or rough hedgerow area or so on. And so we're showing that we can use those rather than leave them there to get burnt in seasonal fires or just to get wasted and taken up by insects. This is a viable fuel source yeah. that's possibly easier to collect than having to chop down a large thick heavy tree that's taken 20 or 30 years to grow. Rather take its dead branches, take its detritus, and if you have a balance there, if we can get the efficiency high enough, maybe you can survive on the, the dropped branches, twigs, bits from the tree and not have to cut it down. I guess also some crop residues like pigeon peas. Mage, also, stover. yes. Yeah, substantial enough. Even tobacco stalks dried. So there are quite a few options of, of, of fuels when you're using these stoves. Yes. Right. And then the last thing that you had mentioned earlier was the emissions. The two principal emissions that come off a traditional wood fire are particulate matter. And we're worried about the particulate matter that's generally less than... So what is that particulate matter? Little bits of soot. What you would see as smoke. Sure. And the trouble is those, especially those that are less than two and a half um, microns, two and a half nanometers, rather that sort of area, they fit exactly into the smallest sacs in your lung. Huh. And that means they don't come out again. Oh. So this is a little bit in a similar sense to those asbestos fibers that fit exactly into the wrong parts of your lung. So there are certain size ranges of particles that are particularly bad for you because they will get stuck in if you inhale them deep into your lungs, they get stuck in there and you don't get them out. So the particulate size is a particular issue. And unfortunately, wood smoke often has quite a bit of troublesome right. sizes. So that's one, one particular emission problem is the particulate matter. The second emission problem is the toxic uh, emissions and the principal one there is carbon monoxide. Yeah. And so what we've been looking at is trying to find more complete combustion so okay. that we produce carbon dioxide instead of carbon monoxide. Carbon dioxide, yeah, it's not a, a great greenhouse gas, but it's not toxic in the sense that it's not going to permanently bind and degrade hemoglobin. It's not going to poison. It's just, if it replaces oxygen, yeah, it doesn't do your body great, but it's not poisonous in the same sense as the carbon monoxide. So the carbon monoxide has been much more of the focus of how can we make sure that the burn is complete combustion. That's why the drive for rocket fuel design or rocket stove design, where we get a more air in 
and a more effective combustion and a gasification of the wood that allows almost complete combustion in that gasification section. What is gasification of wood? Ah, you've probably seen this when you've been sitting at night watching the, the campfire or so on, and you see a flame that's several inches above a log. Yes. And the, there appears to be no connection with the log. Yes, yeah. And what's happening is we find that wood, when it gets hot enough, we start to turn the components in the wood, the primarily, primarily the cellulose and lignin, into gaseous molecules. Rising with the heat, those, when they get to enough oxygen, burn completely. And because it's a gas reaction, we tend to get a better, more efficient burn there than on the surface of the wood. All right. So what we're trying to do in a rocket stove is to get it hot enough so that it is gasifying the wood and then adding enough oxygen into the gasification section so that that is getting complete combustion there. So that in both improves the thermal efficiency, we're getting better conversion, and it reduces the carbon monoxide emission. Okay, so you've started telling us how the design works, but could you tell us a bit more about the types of stoves that you're designing? Well, we've been looking at trying to find low-cost, locally available materials, and especially on that aspect of low cost because we're trying to we'll get these in, in being used in families that are essentially subsistence um, agriculture families. They may have one or two very limited cash crops, so um, available money to buy stoves manufactured. And, and I'm going to use it loosely, Chinese stoves, because that's where a lot of these have been made. Sure. But they're talking about 70, 80 US dollars for this. So if we can find a more viable local alternative that A, isn't that expensive and B, is not using so much resources, that's a bit of definite attractive option. And so we've been looking at metal construction and at clay construction. The clay construction has been championed, should we say, in East Africa and to a big degree in Uganda, where okay. they've developed a version of a rocket stove made out of simple local clay. The construction of that simply involves taking a simple section of drain plastic drain pipe, oiling it, puddling and hammering clay around that to make a airtight fit of, of clay. Not that the airtight between the plastic and the clay, but airtight in the clay. Because if you leave bubbles of air in the clay when you start heating it, those expand and split the stove and and then we design a chimney up from that about a meter, a meter and a half out of, and out of the wall of the hut. We have mostly made these two pot stoves because that's usually about the amount of things that have been cooking concurrently. So there's, All right. so there's two sections for stoves. There's a rocket section. By rocket section, what I'm meaning is that the air is drawn up into the, through the wood and then drawn up the chimney. All right. Okay. And that's to try to get this process of hot burn, gasification, and then additional combustion. Those have, those have been one type we've been testing, and there's been definite advantages. We've had some interesting times about seeing how the families adapt to using them. Yeah, it's been... Uh, Sounds like you have a story there, Robin. Yeah. Um, 
When we built them initially, we asked them to bring their own pot and we carefully fitted the pot to the stove to try to get a, a tight seal between the pot and the stove so that the flue gases would go up the chimney and not out around the pot. Several months later, we came back and I was surveying some of them and how they're being used. And uh, a number of the users had carefully gone out and found a number of small flat stones and inserted those between the stove and the pot to allow the smoke to come up around the pot and not to go up the chimney. So, so why are you doing that? Ah, so, so, so that it surrounds the pot. So does that work better? No, but that's how we've always done it. And so there's some interesting discussions going on and this illustrates that early point about evaluating how the stove is used in a genuine situation sure. rather than in a laboratory where a scientist will be adjusting it to achieve certain objectives and the user might not understand those. Sure. Doesn't yeah. grasp those. And goes and puts stones and vents it out the side rather than uses the chimney resulting smoke in their face, heat burning, not going to the second pot, all of these factors because they didn't see the use in those terms. So there's a lot of, should we say, social training and advice that's also needed rather than simple show them how to construct it and walk away. Sure. So it's important that the person who's using the stove understands what it's yes. actually doing. Another example was we found the vents from the chimney went out the wall and then downwards. Okay. As you can imagine, trying to get a chimney flow to go up and then down isn't very easy. And the result was whenever it was windy, the wind blew back down the chimney wasn't drawing well at all, defeated our objective of having that airflow through the rocket part section of the stove and by taking out the emissions. Okay. So we've been trying to re reorientate the users to okay, build a chimney that's pointing upwards so that airflow will take it across the top of the chimney rather than blow up into it. Yes, okay. And these are just points that come about when the users don't understand the point, Absolutely. the purpose of, of something. But in other cases, we've also found they've worked out better ways to do something. All right, yeah. Tell us about that. One of the things we discovered was that it would be better if we could create a grid for the burning wood to sit on so that air can come up underneath because what's happening after it's being used for an extended period is this accumulation of ash and charcoal. As the wood sinks into the ash, the oxygen supply to that, the air supply to that is restricted. It doesn't burn so well. So we need to find some way to carry that and let the ash fall below sure. and then be scraped out and where leave the wood and the charcoal burning actively on a grid. So those are some of the aspects that have come from from users as well, thinking about how could how could I do this better? Yes, it's got to be a process of development. This is not something that you're going to sit in your laboratory 
design once and say done perfect that's sure. the ideal stove i've done everything no it's not yeah you've got too many objectives to meet to get an ideal stove that's going to meet all of those objectives you've got to start balancing those and saying okay the stove is going to do more of that that one's going to do more of this which is going to work in this situation best and which is going to work with these people best and where you've installed these stoves, how do they compare to a three-stone fire, for example? I've been doing a number of trials. I need to do more to get a properly statistically valid sample, and I'll explain that. But the initial results is that the, the metal rocket stove, the three-stone fire is using between five and eight times more wood to boil a litre of water. Oh, that's quite a lot. Yeah. The clay stove, to compared to the traditional stove, is usually somewhere between two and a half and five times more wood. But those metrics depend on how the two stoves are being used. The metal okay. rocket stove is more efficient at heating things quickly, cooking okay. things in 10 minutes. The clay stove is much more thermally efficient at cooking things on a long extended simmer, 45 minutes. Okay. The second challenge that's come through in this testing is being that several of these stoves are very sensitive to drafts and wind. A wind blowing across the three-stone fire dramatically reduces its efficiency. Really significant. But it doesn't have that much effect on the clay stove or the chimney. So here we have another challenge. Are we going to assess these in completely perfect wind-free situations, or we're gonna assess the comparison in a windy environment, because it makes a very significant difference. There are a lot of aspects to consider, yes. Yeah. And that's the, the challenge and the interest in the project. It's not a technical project alone. It's got too many variables to, to solve just on a, on a technical basis. We're also looking ease of use, emissions, where it's used, how it's used. Yeah, yeah. so it requires very close work with the, the end users. It's almost as if it's impossible to design something. Without their input, yes. Yeah. You've got to go and see how they're using it, where they're using it, and consider that, yes, you can persuade them to adapt some practices, but that's a process in itself. You sure. can't just trot out there, deliver this shiny new thing and say, there you go, put the wood in the bottom, off you go. It's not going to get instant appeal and use unless you start thinking about how it's going to work in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the summary is the I was even surprised at how, how large the improvements were. Sure. When we started to push the, the combustion efficiency. And I think the last bit to think about is how significant an impact that can have on indigenous woodlots. And Absolutely, that, yeah. So if we're thinking that these families are typically, this project is engaged with often tobacco farmers, their wood-fired curing system that uses an enormous amount of wood. Even in their situations, they family lifestyle is using about 10% of that. If we can impact and 
reduce that 10% to 5%, a 50% reduction, which is really possible with some of these, these stove designs, we're going to have a significant impact on the depletion of indigenous timber. Possibly the heart of it is saying, well, where to next? And I think that at this stage, it's a continuing process of development, engagement, and also how do we extend this beyond the pilot area that we've really studied this in, which is the Hurungui area, and how can we use it in other environments, broader sense? Could we also use and bring the same directly to wood-fired tobacco curing? There's been a variety of rocket barn designs. Yeah. Um, how could we get these to be more effective as well? Thinking about what next, if you could imagine the best future, what would it be? Hmm. That's when you go all speculative and you start thinking, well, should we start thinking about changing our cooking habits from wood-fired to something else? Okay. Because if you look at a traditional wood, Fired process, our thermal efficiencies are 20, maybe 30% on an exceptional stove. Yeah. If you look at the thermal efficiency of cooking on an induction hob. Oh, right. You're talking about 90, 90 something percent efficiency. Sure. Can you explain an induction hob just a little bit? Yeah. There's quite a few up for sale in Borodale. <laughs> <laughs> How they work is they create a, an oscillating magnetic field. Yes. The oscillating magnetic field in the correct magnetic pot, in other words, steel, creates eddy currents. These eddy currents can't flow, fire anywhere, so there's a resistance and that develops heat. And so that's the cooking mechanism, but it's a very much more efficient way of transferring energy. One of the sort of blue sky ideas is, well, would it be more effective to have solar panels, high efficiency battery, induction hob. Sure, okay. But the, a solar the, panel is about 20% efficient. But the solar panel is extremely low cost. Once you've bought it once, you can use it for the next possibly 15 years. All right, yeah. So in that sense, there's a much bigger capital investment. Yes. But how does this work out against using all the wood, having to collect, chop, move all the wood. Yeah. What's the cost in that? What's the social human cost in that? And so there's some interesting thoughts in that. That is very thought-provoking. Could you foresee us using induction cookers? I think you really are. I'm starting to see, as I said, you can buy them in Borodale. You start, yeah, okay, well... Borodale isn't all of Zimbabwe, but it may be the start. You're starting to see individual induction hobs, especially in mm. smaller households. Yeah. Rather than having a large, heavy, four-plate stove with oven. Yeah, we had one in our digs at university. Exactly. So you could just tuck it away if you had finished. I think they were, the last price I saw in Borodale was about 25 US. Oh, really? In a rural setting, you've then, as you pointed out, got to buy the, 
the panel, the inverter, the battery. But fascinating, Robin. Really fascinating stuff, isn't it? Robin, where can people go to find out more about rocket stoves and the kind of work you do? It's a couple of very good websites. The Clean Air Initiative or Partnership has some partner researchers. The Avru Pecho Institute, I think it is. It's in um, Oregon. They do a full-time research and they run a number of very good podcasts about their latest designs, what's gone wrong, what's gone right, and have a number of webinars on stove design aspects and features would rate their work as particularly significant. But there's also a number, similar number, if you type in rocket stove search wood, you'll find all sorts of options available. Sure. Thanks so much, Robin. Thanks, Scotty. That was Robin Pauls, independent researcher testing rocket stoves. You can find out more about rocket stoves from the Clean Air Initiative. Find their website at www.cleanairinitiative.org. You can also look at cleanairpartnership.org and cleanairinstitute.org. If you'd like to hear more about managing deforestation, please listen to my past episode with Claire Griffiths on reforestation. Don't forget to sign up to the mailing list by emailing theemergentecosystem at gmail.com or subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Thanks very much to Kevin Hansen for the music and thank you for listening. Until next week, cheers.